think we we better start because uh, time is very precious, as you all know. Um, I, I want to welcome all of you to another event of the Middle Eastern Center uh, here at the LSE. And we are really trying to make a lot of noises, as you know. So every week we have a major event. And I do hope you come to our events in the next few weeks. We have some really big events uh, coming up. We have, uh, what, what uh, it's February the 18th. Uh, we have one of the leading Arab intellectuals, uh, Fawaz Tarabulsi. He will be giving a talk on Lebanon. Uh, it's called uh, Lebanon Revisited. He has a book on Lebanon, on the modern history of Lebanon, and then on Monday. And then on Wednesday in the same week, he's giving a talk on uh, beyond the Arab uprisings. And really, Fawaz Tarabulsi is uh, a well-known uh, Marxist who has been waging battles in the Middle East for the last, you might say, 30 years. So it would be wonderful to hear what he has to say about the historical changes uh, that have taken place in the region. Uh, it really gives me great pleasure to welcome uh, today's uh, speaker, uh, Phyllis Bennis. And I know many of you know that uh, Phyllis has been uh, also at the forefront uh, of what I call the global peace movement. Uh, and I think, as you know, she directs the uh, new internationalism project uh, at the Institute for Policy Studies. And she's also a fellow at uh, the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam. Uh, again, uh, Phyllis is, has been a writer and activist in the United States and in many places um, working on Middle Eastern questions and UN questions in particular, questions uh, peacemaking and conflict resolution in the international system uh, for many, many years. Uh, in 2001, I want to mention this one because it's very important to me, it means a lot to me, and to many of us in 2001, she helped uh, found and remains on the steering committee of the U.S. campaign to end Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. Um, and this particular project, I mean, it, it's, uh, it takes really a fighter to uh, work on such a project uh, in the United States. Um, as I mentioned, she has been a tireless uh, fighter and activist, not just on Palestinian-Israeli peacemaking, but also really at the global peace movement, whether in Afghanistan uh, or Iraq uh, or uh, Palestinian uh, territories. She's also a prolific writer uh, for a non-academic. Uh, she has written eight books, uh, many more books than many of us have written. So I'm, I, I, am, I am very jealous. Uh, I am. Uh, but I want to mention two particular books uh, that uh, we have here today. And um, I really hope that you, you uh, take a look at these two books. Um, the first is Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, a primer. Uh, it's on sale here. And the other is Ending the U.S. War in Afghanistan, published in 2010. Um, and these books, you can read them anywhere, on the train, on the bus, uh, and accessible. Uh, they're not simplistic, on the contrary, accessible uh, and critical as well. Uh, as you know, <clears throat> today's topic really uh, is America um, and the Middle East in general and America and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I think um, it would not be an exaggeration to say 
that the United States is the most important pivotal player, not one of the most important, is the most pivotal player in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Why? By virtue of its preponderant influence over the last 50 or 60 years. Since the early 1950s, the United States has replaced or replaced Britain and France and the colonial powers as the dominant uh, power in the region. Why? Because the United States has made major military investments in the region. In fact, I would argue in many ways there are more American troops and military bases in the Middle East than any places in the world, including Europe. Uh, the United States basically supports and uh, many of the major players in the regions, in particular in the Gulf and other places. Why? Because the United States provides foreign aid. I mean, when we talk, almost 60% of the American foreign aid budget, 60% goes to two players in the international system, Israel's and Egypt. Israel's get $3.2 billion a year. This is informal as opposed to informal aid and Egypt gets $2.1 billion in particular since the signing of the Camp David uh, Treaty. Not only the United States is one of the most important pivotal players in the Middle East, in fact I would argue the United States is not just a superpower, the United States has become a Middle Eastern power. Literally, the United States is a superpower and a Middle Eastern power by the virtue of the investments that it has made, military, political, and financial by virtue of the facts that it supports and sustains the dominant order that exists in the region since the 1950s. And that's by itself a testament to how preponderant American influence in the region. Go back to the idea, and Phyllis will have much more to say about this, because uh, the reality is you cannot conceive, you cannot conceive of a peace settlement in the Middle East without America playing a role in that particular peace uh, uh, process because uh, of the influence, the, the, the tremendous influence that exercises in particular on the major players, on Israel on the one hand and on its, some of its Arab allies on the other hand. Another, I would not be also saying anything original to say that not only America is a pivotal, fundamental player that American foreign policy in the Middle East is an extension of its domestic politics. It's also, this is a, a point that many of us in the academy keep repeating, and anyone who knows anything about American foreign policy appreciates the critical impact that American domestic politics play on America's Middle Eastern foreign policy. In fact, the anecdote that all politics is local is really, this is, fits perfectly in the case of the Middle East. And I think in addition what I'm trying, let me be a bit more blunt, there is a widespread perception, and I think to a large extent, it's, it's uh, whether you're talking about the, the, the university, is that Israel and its friends, what people call the Israeli lobby, have a stranglehold on American foreign policy toward the Middle East. This is the dominant uh, received wisdom, whether you're talking about the university, or you're talking about the street, that Israel and its friends uh, broadly uh, define. Uh, and many of us take these hypotheses for granted. Uh, literally, we, we hardly question the fact that uh, 
the Israel uh, lobby, broadly defined, is really omnipotent in the United States. That is, it's, it's uh, any politician, any politician in America, any American president that dares to challenge the uh, Israel lobby would be defeated at the polls. That's the, one of the hypotheses that basically is taken uh, for granted. Uh, and another hypothesis, if it gets repeated all the time, there is no daylight between America and Israel. Regardless of who governs Israel, John, Joe Biden, for example, his favorite term is that there is no daylight between America and Israel, be it Perez or Ariel Sharon or Netanyahu. Or in the words of the most liberal voice in the U.S. Congress, we speak in one voice on Israel. When Obama confronts Netanyahu at the White House, and basically they have a big row over settlements, Netanyahu next morning at 9.30 in the morning, he goes to the Congress and he welcomed by both leaders of the party. And Pelosi, the most liberal voice, ally of Obama, she said, I don't know what they, tell, what, what they told you at the White House, but here, Mr. Prime Minister, we speak with one voice. And one voice meaning that what Netanyahu says is uh, sacred. Uh, well, to what extent, I mean the question for all of us, is uh, to what extent such hypotheses and views reflect the complexity of American politics? Because I mean, it's, remember this conventional wisdom has not been construct, deconstructed, taken for granted, because all of us repeat these like sacred, is that uh, I, I, I and many others believe there is more to American politics than the received wisdom. That there is a great deal of politics happening below the surface. There is more to American civil society and public opinion, even American political uh, system. Uh, and there is a daylight uh, between the United States and Netanyahu, as opposed because Netanyahu, even though he's the prime minister, and I would go further to say the daylight exists also within the Jewish community, the American Jewish community, and some Israeli leaders who do not speak the language of uh, uh, liberation, freedom, of decency, the language who speak the language of, uh, uh, of colonialism. Many American Jews feel extremely uh, part of the struggle for peace and liberation. And here I, 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 I don't want to speak too much. I've already really, I, 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 not only I, I'm delighted to have Phyllis here, but there are really very few people as qualified as Phyllis to tell us about what's happening below the surface what's happening really uh, from top, bottom up as opposed to top down. Because many of us, we academics, historians, international relationists, think in terms of abstract ideas. The role of bureaucratic politics and domestic politics. And we, we fly with these abstracts. Uh, a person like Phyllis as a writer and activist, in particular as an activist, she knows what's happening below the surface. Uh, she has been fighting some of these uh, particular fights. And that's why really I, we're delighted to have her here and please join me in welcoming uh, Phyllis to the LSE. Thank you, Fawaz. That's a delightful introduction and a, a challenge. Do I need to turn this a bit? Okay. Yes. I think so. yeah. Thank you all for showing up on this rather London dreary afternoon. I suppose this is sort of normal for you here, right? Uh, it's supposed to be a bit dreary, but it's a Friday afternoon, and I'm very grateful that you all came out for this discussion. I, I think it is 
an amazing time for all of this. And this particular week is also an amazing time because it's an anniversary that I'm very proud of. In, uh, in about a week, on February 15th, we will have the anniversary of the day the world said no to war. Looking around the room, I'm seeing most of you might be too young to remember. It's rather refreshing. I've been speaking to an awful lot of old people lately who play an important role, but it's um, wonderful to be in a room full of people who are too young to remember February 15th of 2003, which was the, the global, uh, the day of, of global mobilizations against war in Iraq uh, in the last weeks before George Bush invaded Iraq. Uh, and there were demonstrations in over 800 cities around the world uh, with somewhere, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, somewhere between 14 and 15 million people the biggest mobilization of, of humanity in the history of the world to say no to this looming war. And one of the things that was so interesting about it was the next day, the New York Times did something they almost never do, which is to tell the truth on the front page above the fold in a very big article that said there are once again two superpowers in the world. Fawaz spoke earlier of the US as a superpower, and it certainly still is. But the New York Times said there are once again two superpowers, the United States and global public opinion. That was huge. It was a recognition from the paper of record, as they like to say in the United States, that governments and armies are not the only source of power. That when people had mobilized on this level, it represented a fundamental challenge. And it was enough that it forced governments around the world to stand up to the U.S., governments that would never on their own go head-to-head -head with Washington, and ultimately forced the United Nations to do what its charter says it's supposed to do, but what it all too rarely does actually do, which is to stand against the scourge of war. So it was an extraordinary moment, and one that I think has uh, given rise, there's a new film that will be out within the month called We Are Many, and it documents that protest and documents, among other things, how it influenced the mobilizations throughout the Arab world that became known as the Arab Spring, particularly in, in Tahrir Square in Cairo, where some of the key activists who were at the, at the core leadership in Tahrir Square two years ago had also been part of the Cairo mobilization of February 15th and talked about what they learned from that demonstration that stood them in such good stead a decade later when it came time to overthrow a tyrant. So it's an amazing, moving uh, story. In the United States right now, aside from those of us celebrating February 15th, we're in for a rather difficult ride. Uh, we, we've just uh, had the inauguration for a second term of President Obama, somebody that we had, had long felt very hopeful about, but whose policies, whose actual policies, particularly in foreign affairs, on issues of war and peace, did not, by any stretch of the imagination, live up to the hopes of his first campaign, the hopes and change, the hopes for change that characterized that campaign in 2008 were never realized. Uh, certain things were, were done well, certain issues around immigration and gay rights and women and labor arguably on the environment slightly better than most. But overall, President Obama has been a very um, mainstream US president at a time demanding 
somebody outside the mainstream. And the incredible achievement in a country like mine, grounded in genocide and slavery at its root, to have elected an African-American was an unbelievable achievement, an unbelievable achievement in the struggle against racism. But having said that, I think we all secretly knew that the first African-American president was not going to be able to be historic for more than being the first African-American president, was not going to be the exception, the outside-the-box leader that was going to take the United States in a whole different direction, that was going to choose, for example, a Secretary of Defense who would turn the U.S. military, the U.S. Pentagon, into an instrument of defense rather than what it is and has been for so long, an instrument of offense, an instrument of intervention, aggressive intervention around the world. So we have had to face that, but at the same time we've had to look, and we've had the opportunity now, the second time around, to look at what might be possible. What are the, the possibilities for the second Obama term? Uh, we've heard that with the, the, the confirmation of the new Secretary of State, John Kerry, that both Kerry and President Obama himself are going to go to Israel and go to the occupied territories, something that didn't happen during the first term. Now, as far as it goes, that's a good thing. I think one of the challenges that they're going to face is how do you get Obama from Jerusalem, where he meets with the Knesset and is met with great fanfare, to Ramallah to meet with the Palestinians without having to see the wall. This is going to be a big struggle because he can't see the wall. If he sees the wall, then people are going to be able to say, what about that wall, Mr. President? What about your predecessor, President Reagan, who so famously said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Are you going to say that to Prime Minister Netanyahu? Mr. Netanyahu, tear down that wall. The answer is no, don't get your hopes up. But the question that they face is, how do you get him there? How do you either drive along some back roads or put him in a helicopter and say, look over there, Mr. President, look over there. See those birds over there? Don't look over there. Look over there, you know. It's not going to be easy. They did this with Condoleezza Rice a few years ago where she actually claimed she didn't see the wall. And people were saying, really? How'd you manage that? You know, it's not so easy. The wall is one of only two man-made, and I say that carefully because it really was only men, I think, who worked on it, one of only two man-made things visible from space. The other is the Great Wall of China. Those are the two things that you can see from space. So the fact that you can somehow imagine driving or taking a helicopter or whatever from Jerusalem to Ramallah without seeing it is going to be a very big challenge. But I think if we step back from the Obama administration. There are certain things about US policy in the Middle East that have remained the same since the end of World War II. There are basically three parts to the policy. Defense of Israel, control of oil, and stability in the interest of both markets and the expansion of power. And the lesson that every president learns is that you can't ever have all three because they kind of contradict each other. You can have, if you're good, two of the three at any given moment, and you can sometimes move them around and emphasize one rather than the other, but you pretty much can't have all three at the same time. So you have to make your judgments which ones are the priorities. George Bush the first, he was an oil guy, 
And he was willing not to sell out Israel, but to put Israel as the third instead of the first of those three priorities. Most other presidents have kept Israel right on top. But the problem facing President Obama right now is that U.S. interests in all three of those arenas are losing. So if you look at the question of oil, the U.S. went to war in Iraq for oil. Well, what does that mean concretely? It's not an abstraction. It was a, it was a very real war for a very real set of goals. The goals included get U.S. oil companies to play the dominant role in controlling Iraqi oil impose a government in Baghdad that would be pro-U.S. without any question, get a government in power that would be anti-Iran, maintain at least most of the 500 or so U.S. military bases in Iraq as a way of using them as a jumping off pad to attack elsewhere in the region, and have a government empowered in Baghdad that would allow the U.S. to use Iraq as a starting point to attack Iran. Well, they didn't do so well on any of those. It's true there are U.S. oil companies in the Iraqi oil fields, but they're not getting any special privileges, and they're competing with oil companies from Italy and France and Russia and China and China and China and China and Venezuela and a bunch of other places. They're not doing all that well. All 500 bases had to be closed. All 68,000 by the time they left, U.S. military forces had to be withdrawn. All the Pentagon paid contractors had to be pulled out. 500 bases shut down. A government that's arguably closer to Iran than it is to the United States. A government that has no intention of allowing the U.S. to use Iraq as a jumping off place to attack Iran. So what did we really get out of that war other than more than a million Iraqis killed? 4,500 or so young soldiers killed, and the impoverishment of Iraq and the U.S. Treasury, what exactly did we win from that? So that's one of the things on the oil side. On the Israel side, Israel is clearly more isolated right now in the region and globally than it has been in a very long time. In the region, certainly the Arab Spring has isolated Israel because its, its position in the region was based on mainly three things. One was military power, particularly the nuclear monopoly. Two was its unchallengeable un alliance with the United States, the one part that hasn't changed. And third was the willingness of Arab dictators to do the U.S.'s bidding to be nice to Israel, regardless of what people in their countries wanted. Well, numbers one and three aren't doing so great anymore. Number two is still there. That's what the U.S. campaign is trying to challenge, the uncritical U.S. support for Israel. And when you look at the goal of stability in the region for markets and the expansion of U.S. power, not doing so well there either. This is all in the context of the U.S. overall losing power. As a, as a global superpower, the U.S. is clearly on the decline. That's not news. That's been going on for a pretty long time now. But what it means in the real world is that you have to re rely more on those instruments of power that remain when many of the instruments of power are collapsing. So if you look at the U.S. in the 90s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Cold War, the U.S. is really the sole superpower, right? Economically, politically, diplomatically, culturally, militarily, in all those ways, the U.S. is in control. Now, 
that it has competitors, certainly economically, but also diplomatically, politically. The U.S. simply does not have the influence it once did. The one weapon it has, the one instrument of power that still is so dominant in the world is the military. And you get into the problem of the hammer and the nail. If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're a superpower with only one instrument left, you're going to use that instrument. So what does that mean? It means that no one can see a human rights crisis somewhere that doesn't require a military solution. That's what we're, that's what we're looking at. It's all the U.S. has, which makes everybody in the world, it makes it very dangerous for everybody in the world because the one thing the U.S. can still rely on is its military power. It doesn't have the influence in all the other arenas. So it's losing in all three of those areas. The recent position for Israel is astonishing how fast it has moved. I don't know how many of you saw just a, what it, it's been about a week ago, I guess, the UN Human Rights Council issued its latest fact-finding report on the question of settlements. Many of you have seen it. I see nods around the room. And this was astonishing. Now, it's not the first or the last UN Human Rights Report on Israel. You know the, the claim that, that they spend much too much time on Israel. But this report was new and different in a whole host of ways. Among other things, it made clear that it wasn't simply an, a legal assessment that settlements in the occupied West Bank and occupied East Jerusalem and the siege of Gaza are, in fact, violations of international law, violations of the Geneva Accord, uh, of the Geneva Conventions, but that the solution was, number one, Israel has to stop all settlement activity. Not new and different. Again, even the U.S. has said that on occasion. But the U.N. doesn't say it very often. It doesn't issue pronouncements very often on what has to happen. And crucially, the second thing it said had to happen was that Israel has to begin removing all the settlers, 550,000 settlers. Now, Bibi Netanyahu says it's 650,000 settlers. I'm going to go with him. I think he knows. But whatever, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who are violating international law every morning simply by getting out of bed because their bedroom is built on illegally expropriated land. The UN has never come out and said, you've got to get those people out of there. But they talk about, well, we need a two-state solution. Everybody knows there's going to be a two-state solution. Really? And how's that going to happen exactly? Well, the UN is saying how it's going to happen. You want a two-state solution? Here's what it requires. You've got to stop building in the settlements, and you've got to remove the settlers. Now, anybody who knows anything about the settlements knows that that's not going to happen. You can talk about removing people from these new little outposts that are springing up around the occupied territories. Great fanfare, every once in a while the Israelis will go in and take out you know, half a dozen teenagers that have set up a new little outpost. But the vast majority of those 650,000 settlers don't live in those little outposts. At most, that's something like 60,000 in these small little groups. The vast majority live in city-sized settlements. You look at Ma'aleo Dumim, the biggest settlement on the West Bank. 45,000 people live there. It's a city. It's a city. It has two colleges. It has shopping centers. It has swimming pools, five high schools. And it's, it, it votes labor. It votes merits. It's not made up of ideological you know, extremists. They're not religious. I was there one time a couple of years ago. And I had this fascinating conversation with a woman who lived there. 
she was talking about, you know, the, I should just say the symbol of Ma'aleo Dumim, the, the logo for the town, is the Picasso dove of peace, right? So I'm talking to this woman, and she's talking about how, oh, you know, the settlers are such a problem. These settlers, they, you know, they have so much influence in Israeli politics, it's really a problem. And she's going on and on, and I'm looking around thinking, what's wrong with this picture, you know? And finally I said to her, but you live in a settlement. And she looked at me very quizzically, and she said, this isn't a settlement. The settlements are over there. And she sort of pointed to this distant hilltop. She said, this is a city. I said, yeah, it's a city, but it's a city built on occupied land. It's a settlement. And she said, well, I guess, technically. And it was clear that in her sort of worldview, the permanence of it and the size of it meant that it was no longer a settlement. That settlements, in her view, were what settlements mean when you say the word in the United States, or I assume here in the UK. People think of a tent encampment with hardy settlers, you know, out there tilling the land, right? They haven't been like that for two generations now. These are, you know, plain old yuppie settlers in, in the cities. They move there because they get government subsidies that pay for the electricity hookups and the water. Speaking of water, who do you think controls all the Palestinian water? But it's, a, it's an astonishing thing to see how that sort of propaganda seeps into the mindset of people themselves. So when polled, something like 75% of the settlers said they would be willing to give up their home and move back into Israel proper in the interest of a peace settlement if they were compensated for all they own in their settlements. Well, let's talk about that. You know, it's one thing to compensate 7,000 Gaza settlers who had a few, uh, um, what do you call it, greenhouses for their, you know, for their settlements. You could do that. It cost a fortune. It cost tens of, of, of billions of dollars. But you could do that. We should note that most of them were resettled in the West Bank settlements, not inside Israel. But okay. But the idea that you're going to somehow buy out 600,000 settlers and buy whole cities and what, evacuate them? I mean, this is really not going to happen. So the fact that the UN said that this is what's required to make a two-state solution work was really quite an extraordinary thing. So it goes to the question of how, the, the, how Israel is losing the moral high ground, how it's losing its legitimacy. It's not losing its legitimacy because people are trying to delegitimize it. It's losing its legitimacy because its actions are not only illegitimate, but illegal and increasingly visible. You know, someone asked me earlier today, what do you think was the, was the tipping point for the change in discourse in the United States, which is what I really want to focus on? And I said, you know, I don't think there's any one tipping point. There, are, there have been many tipping points. The first intifada was a tipping point when it, with the transformation of, of the vision of Palestinians from being, quote, terrorists to being suddenly victims. The, the Arab Spring was a tipping point of a sort when people saw on television many, many Arabs from, whether they were Tunisians or Egyptians, early on Syrians or Libyans or Yemenis or, or uh, Bahrainis, who look just like them, who are addicted to cell phones, who wear blue jeans, you know, who talk on, on, on their cell phones and are on Facebook all the time. And there's something problematic about that, you know, the idea that, oh, they're really okay because they're just like us. When the vast majority of Arabs, thank you, are not just like us, the vast majority don't speak English, don't use cell phones because they can't afford them, 
So you know, we need to be a little bit less Western-centric uh, in our understanding of that. But there have been many points like that, nodal points of discourse shifting around. But one of the most important, I would assert, in the recent period has been the attacks on Gaza. Operation Cast led in 2008 and 9, and most recently last, uh, last November, and in between the, the flotilla, where it was not a situation where these, these horrors had not happened before. Israel had attacked Gaza before. Israel had attacked Janine before and virtually wiped out the, the Janine refugee camp. The attacks on, on Lebanon, going back to Sabra and Shatila, go back to Kufr Qasim, go back, go back. But it's because these were visible in a whole new way. They were televised. You remember, well, some of you will remember the, the old song, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Well, the Intifada wasn't televised, but the siege of Gaza was televised. And the efforts of the Israelis to keep out the international press failed, partly because you had Al Jazeera and others who had Gazan reporters, Mohammed Omer, who was writing for the international press, you know, others, uh, Tagrid um, uh, El Khoderi, who was writing for the New York Times, Gazan reporters who live in Gaza. They couldn't keep them out, they were already there. And every Gazan has a cell phone, right? So that when the electricity came back on for an hour here or there, the first thing everybody would do would be charge up your cell phone so you could send the pictures out, get the word out. So people were seeing it in a very visceral way. And that was huge. That was huge. So I think when we see things like the, the confirmation hearings of Chuck Hagel to become the new Secretary of Defense in the United States, hearings that made him appear to be so craven and so unwilling to challenge anything that the pro-Israel lobbies said, despite the fact that his political credential was precisely that he had been one of the few to stand up to the Israel lobbies, uh, threatened with the possibility that he might not be confirmed, he was willing to say whatever they wanted. And it was a horrible thing to watch. But at the end of the day, what was more interesting about that was number one, the Obama administration was prepared to go ahead and, and promote him and defend him as their candidate, despite the massive attacks on him that had begun even before he was officially appointed. And number two, the response to this, the attacks of the lobby groups by other powerful forces. So you have, for the first time, the New York Times editorial board coming out and not only saying, we support Chuck Hagel, but saying, and we find it appalling what these lobby groups are trying to do to derail serious discussion. You know, they talked about how in that eight hours of, of hearings. This is somebody who is being appointed to be the head of the entire U.S. military. At a moment when there are 66,000 U.S. soldiers fighting in Afghanistan, when the U.S. is escalating a horrifying drone, well, they won't say it's horrifying, but is escalating a massive drone war in countries now all around the world, where the military budget is about to face massive uh, cuts for the first time in a generation, where the role of women and gays and lesbians in the military is on the, the front pages of, of the military's agenda, what do they ask about in the Congress? Israel. 
177 times Israel is mentioned. Afghanistan, where there are 66,000 U.S. troops fighting, 11 times. What does that say about the discourse in this country? But it isn't me talking about it. It's the New York Times editorial board. So that's huge. There's an incident at Brooklyn College about a week ago. Some of you may have heard about this. They were going to, they did have a panel on the BDS campaign, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions campaign that was initiated in 2005 by Palestinian civil society organizations who called for a global campaign to bring nonviolent economic pressure to bear on Israel to stop its violations of international law, its violations of human rights. And it's been a wildly successful campaign, modeled in some ways on the anti-apartheid campaign against South Africa in the 1980s and early 90s, but very different in many ways as well. But there was a panel planned for, for uh, Brooklyn College featuring Omar Barghouti, who's one of the founders of the BDS movement in the, in the Palestinian territories, and the great philosopher Judith Butler from California, from the University of California at Berkeley, a very well-known, internationally known philosopher. And suddenly it became a hugely contentious issue. And not only was there a move by pro-Israel forces on campus to sort of fight against it and protest and whatever, but the New York City Council took it up and said, we're going to defund the university if this, if this program is held. And you know, it, it, became, it was wild. It was going on like it, you'd think that, well, I don't know what you'd think, but it, it was a pretty appalling thing to watch. It wasn't the first time that it happened. This has been happening you know, for years. But what was different this time was that nobody was cowed. The president of the university wrote a letter back basically saying, who do you people think you are? She didn't quite use that language, but that was the essence of it. The New York Times editorial board, I don't know why I'm praising them so much, but they've been doing some amazing stuff lately, came out and said, we're against settlements, we're not for BDS, we don't like BDS, but how dare you try and shut them up? They must be allowed to have this panel. And the, uh, the 10 members of the, the New York City Council, who of course are otherwise mostly liberal, you know, there's this old tradition in the Jewish part of pro-Israeli organizing in the U.S. known as PEP, Progressive Except Palestine. So the, the eight of the ten New York City Council members are PEPs of the first order, and they were embarrassed by it. So they wrote a clarification letter saying, we never would have cut funds. Really? Well, your letter said you'd cut funds, but okay. They pulled back like anybody's business. It was amazing to watch. So that's where you see the shift in discourse. The pro-Israel forces, these lobby forces, APAC, the, the uh, KUFI, Christians United for Israel, the Emergency Committee for Israel, they are going wild right now. Why? Because they know they're losing. Especially they know they're losing the young people. They're losing young Jews. You know, you see the rise of an organization like Jewish Voice for Peace, which is an incredible organization. It now has, I think the last time I checked in with them, they have something like 60, 65,000 members, a mailing list of 150,000, chapters in 30, 35 cities around the US, campus chapters on like another 30 or 40 campuses, and they have a youth wing called Young Jewish Proud. And these kids, sorry, I shouldn't say, they, these young people are just amazing. They were the ones who did the first confrontations with Bibi Netanyahu in the US. 
about a year and a half ago. I don't know if any of you saw the video, but I urge you to look it up on YouTube. It was the most astonishing thing. The second biggest meeting of pro-Israel Jewish forces in the U.S. every year. APAC is the biggest. They always get 10 to 12,000 people. The second biggest, which gets about 8,000, is called the, um, uh, the Jewish Federation Councils. They have this annual big meeting, and Netanyahu was the keynote speaker. So it's at this fancy dinner. There's 8,000 people, right? It's, it's 800 tables of 10. And Netanyahu gets up, and he begins to speak, and he goes on and on. And all of a sudden, a young woman sitting at one of the tables, who five minutes earlier has been chit-chatting with the people sitting at her table, and they're so proud that you know this young Jewish girl is so bright and articulate, and they're so glad she's there because there's not enough young people here. She suddenly stands up, and she pulls out from under her shirt a cloth banner that says, the occupation delegitimizes Israel. Just as Netanyahu gets to the point of saying, there are those who would delegitimize Israel. She gets up and says, it's the occupation that delegitimizes Israel. And she stands on a chair, you know, because it's an enormous room, 8,000 people in the room, and there's silence. People are frozen. And she shouts and she shouts, and Netanyahu stops talking. And you see on the faces, people are kind of frozen. There's, the, the tape isn't very good because it's somebody with like a hidden cell phone camera taking the pictures. But suddenly the people at her table realize that they've got to do something and they grab her and they, they throw her out. And Netanyahu starts talking again. He ignores her and he goes back and he starts saying those who would, who would delegitimize Israel. And suddenly 10 tables over, a young man stands up and he pulls out a, a banner that says the settlements delegitimize Israel. The same thing. And he stands up on the table and the people at his table pull him down and they're kind of beating him up as they throw him out. But the expression on the faces of the people around them is one of abject terror because they realize they're losing their young people. There were six, five of them, six of them. It was the most astonishing thing to watch, like five minutes apart, sitting very far from each other, incredibly brave, incredibly brave. And this organization is now, I would argue, one of the most influential parts of the Jewish community. So it's not to say that APAC, which is by far the most powerful uh, lobby organization working on the issue uh, is not powerful. They have the money. Why do they have the money? Because they represent the right wing of the Jewish community and that's where the right wing you know, puts their money. So they still can make threats in Congress. They still can let members of Congress know that if you don't toe the line on, on Israel, on your votes, you will face a very well-funded opponent the next time you have to run for office but they no longer can claim that they also bring votes to the table. You know, when you speak in Washington, our, our, de our democracy doesn't work very well. I know yours isn't that great, but yours is better than ours in a host of ways. We only have two parties, number one, uh, which is somewhat problematic. But the question of how, how the, the uh, influence happens, when you come to meet with a member of Congress, a senator, the president, You've got to bring to the table either money or votes. If you don't have one or the other, you're not going to have much influence. It used to be that APAC could bring both. They would come with the money, make the threats, but they also had the votes because in the Jewish community, in the organized Jewish community, they were the leading voice. You know, people looked to them to see how should we vote. Look at the election of 2008, when not only APAC, but all of the major Jewish lobby organizations 
came out against Obama until the very end, saying he's not pro-Israel enough, he's not good enough for the Jews in the U.S. In the past, that might have had some influence. But by 2008, AIPAC just didn't call the shots. And as it turned out, 78% of Jewish voters voted for Barack Hussein Obama. Because the question of Israel was no longer the most important issue for the vast majority of Jews. There are those Jews for whom it is still the most important, and some of them are wealthy beyond imagination, like Sheldon Adelson, who has funded a number of projects, things like uh, the uh, Project Birthright, which funds young American Jews, anyone, any Jew under 30 who's never been to Israel can get a 10-day all-expense-paid trip. Um, they do them five, six times a year. They spend time with young Israelis, young soldiers. Uh, it's a propaganda outfit. Many of them have come back saying, this was an outrageous effort you were making to try and brainwash me. And some of them went off and founded an organization called Birthright Unplugged uh, that does trips you know, to Israel and the occupied territories. But, you know, so there are people with plenty of money who are still desperately trying to change that. But for the vast majority of Jews in the U.S., the concerns are the same for everybody else. Jobs, health care, egalitarianism on some way, social justice. So that's one of the things that's changed. If we want to look at evidence, let me give you just some examples of this discourse shift. You all know about the Walt Mearsheimer book on the Israel lobby. I don't happen to like the book very well. I disagree with, uh, with certain parts of their premises. But you know, that doesn't matter. They broke an incredible taboo that said, you don't write about the lobby because you don't acknowledge there is such a thing, right? And they said, what is this? We're academics, we study this issue, we're gonna write a book. They wrote a book. And they got a lot of problems with it, but the sky didn't fall. They didn't lose their jobs. Harvard and the University of Chicago didn't fire them. They're doing fine, thank you very much, you know. <laughs> President Carter's book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. Again, it's not a great book. It leaves out a lot of international law issues, among other things. And people can say, well, he was able to publish it because he was the ex-president. All true. But five years earlier, he would not have found a U.S. publisher, ex-president or not. It's really, it's a very different, it's a very different world. The BDS movement in, in the world has taken off enormously. You all know about it here in the UK, where a lot it's on individual boycott actions. Some of the most creative things you've probably all seen on YouTube, these flash mobs, the hummus dancers, uh, you know, focusing on, on uh, Sabra, Sabra hummus sales and on SodaStream and all the various uh, settlement produced produce. I think it was here in, the U in London actually, or maybe it was, it was either London or Paris, where they invented the de-stocking uh, tactic which I thought was quite a brilliant tactic in big supermarkets where they sell a lot of Israeli uh, produce, avocados and tomatoes and dates, I'm not sure what else. The, what they would do is come in with t-shirts, very visible, a big crowd, 10, 20 people, and they would fill their, their shopping baskets with all the Israeli produce that, and you know, market and go up and wait in line at, you know, to check out and then leave their basket and go out singing. And then, of course, the, the store owners had to pay the workers to put everything back on the shelves. So no laws were broken, but it was a very visible and very creative kind of, uh, of technique. But on a larger scale, the impact has been huge. If you look in the U.S., the mainstream U.S. Protestant denominations, the biggest among them, the, the Presbyterians and the Methodists, just in the last six months, both 
passed at their international conferences incredibly powerful resolutions calling for full boycotts of all settlement-produced goods, opposition to all U.S. military aid to Israel, and both came within a hair of passing even more sweeping uh, divestment resolutions. Both of them will probably pass that next, next vote around. It was extraordinary. It's the mainstreaming of BDS. There's a, uh, a, a, um, uh, an agency that, that takes care of pension funds in the U.S. You know, we don't have pensions guaranteed the way ordinary civilized countries do. Uh, so we have private pensions. And one of the biggest is called TIAA-CREF. And there was a campaign for them. They call themselves the, the pension defenders for the good people because so, they mainly work for teachers and nurses and nonprofits, that sort of thing. So there was a campaign to get them. This was a campaign launched by Jewish Voice for Peace, actually, to take Caterpillar bulldozers off of their list of socially responsible companies. You all know the history of Caterpillar. Their armored bulldozers are used by the Israeli military to demolish Palestinian homes. They were used, it was a Caterpillar armored bulldozer driven by two Israeli soldiers that killed Rachel Corey, the young Israeli peace activist. The 10th anniversary of her death is next, well, in, it's next month, uh, March 16th. We're coming on that 10 year anniversary as well. So Caterpillar has been one of the key targets of the BDS movement. And just a couple of months ago, uh, TIAA-CREF took, uh, took Caterpillar off of its list of approved companies for its social responsibility investments. The same day, Morgan Stanley, one of the biggest investment brokers, divested $73 million worth of, of out of Caterpillar stock specifically because of their actions in, uh, in the occupied territories. So you see this happening on a on a, a really massive uh, a really massive kind of scale. One one uh, poll that I'll I'll give you as an example. Fawaz spoke earlier of the the debate that erupted in in 2010 in that summer when Obama was being accused of throwing Israel under a bus and he was so being too tough on Israel on the settlements that there was this big fight over settlements. Well, in fact, there was no real pressure as we know. Uh, there was a, a polite request, please stop building settlements, and then the answer was no, and then they stopped requesting. You know, real pressure would have looked like stop building settlements, answer no, and then okay, you can do what you want, but you know that $30 billion of military aid we've pledged to give you these 10 years? You can kiss that goodbye. And you know how we protect you in the UN so you're never held accountable? We're not going to do that anymore. So those are you know, that's what real pressure would have looked like. We didn't see that. But nonetheless, the press throughout the U.S. was writing about how there was this huge gap emerging between the Obama administration and Israel. Isn't this terrible? And right then, there was a poll taken about public opinion about the settlements. And people were given a choice. It said, Israelis are building settlements throughout the occupied territories. Which of the following sentences do you agree with? So sentence number one, Israelis are building settlements for security reasons and they have the right to build wherever they want. Sentence number two, Israelis are building settlements on expropriated land and they should all be torn down and the land returned to its original owners. Now that's a pretty provocative description. It, in my view it happens to be true, but it, it's, you could say it in a slightly more gentle way if you wanted to. This was a pretty in-your-face description, right? 63% of Democrats chose statement number two. That was incredible. 
Now, you know, it's a poll, so it's a moment, it's a, it's a snapshot. It doesn't mean they're going to say the same thing the next day. But for that to happen right at that moment, I think was a rather astonishing indication of, of, this, kind of uh, this kind of a shift. So I think that when we look at what has to happen now, and I want to wrap up here so that we have time for some more questions, and I know Fawaz wants to raise a couple of other <coughs> related issues. Um, I think that what we're facing is a, a fundamental question in the U.S. of the failures of a democratic system, a democratic system that is so flawed and so broken and so failed that public opinion simply does not have influence. Most of you probably know about the Supreme Court decision known as Citizens United that gives corporations in the United States essentially the rights of citizenship, the rights of free speech, which is defined as money. Corporations are allowed to donate as much money as they want to any political candidate, any campaign, anything, no questions asked. And that means that whatever people think is simply not taken as serious. That's the challenge that we face. We have come a long way. The U.S. campaign that the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation, which Fawaz mentioned, is 11 years old now. And over that decade, we've I'm, I'm very proud of the work we've done. We've been part of this process of, of changing the discourse. But our challenge now is how do you transform a discourse shift into a policy shift? How does it matter on the ground? That's what we face today. And that's a much more difficult problem. As tricky, as challenging, as hard as it is to change public opinion, you know, you want to talk about the impact of the movie Exodus in changing public opinion in the US. I think half the people of my parents' generation, every time they think of Israel, they still think of Paul Newman. It makes it very tough, you know. But that part was easy relative to what it's going to be like to change the public policy on this issue. So let me stop there. We'll go back to a few other questions, and then we'll open it up. Thank you. For, uh, Thanks. I mean, Phyllis has spoken for herself and me, myself. We just have half an hour, so because we really we inspired. What do you mean, sorry? Thank <laughs> well, you, because you have really given us much food for thought. I, I mean it. So we'll take questions, because I know you have many, many questions. We'll take four questions uh, at a time, but please let's be, I mean, uh, concise and, and quick. It's just 30 minutes. Alan? Two concise questions. Um, Two more questions in the first round, please. I have a question um, as far as APAC goes and any 
organizations, do they have people in Washington that are kind of countering the strategies of the lobbyists when they have? Thanks. More questions? I know there are many questions. Please. Why is the U.S. opinion so much more pro-Israeli versus, say, the European one? Is that the media, you think, and or the lack or the worst media that is in the U.S., especially in Afghanistan, things like that versus, say, London Paris? You know, and I, I, I just also, since uh, one, one final question, uh, you know, you're absolutely correct, really, you, you, you have presented a fascinating uh, portrait of what's, what's happening uh, in terms of public opinions of society, and you've given us a glance, really, of what's happening within the American Jewish community. And by the way, many reports have been written on young people in particular, young rabbis in particular. Young yes. rabbis, very, very progressive. It's really quite a sweeping movement on the part of the young versus the in terms of generation. What really amazes me, Phyllis, to me as, as a student of, uh, I mean, I'm myself American and I follow, uh, and I, is that while we have witnessed a relatively important shift in terms of public opinion and the media, New York Times, your, the editorial page of New York Times is just fascinating. It really yeah. is. Uh, and by the way, Netanyahu has made the editorial page of New York Times number one enemy. Mm -hmm. They believe that it is part of, no, seriously, this yeah. is a very delegitimizing process. They accuse the New York Times. What we have seen in the last 20 years in particular is a different, a reverse shift on the part of the American political system. In the 1960s and 1950s and 1970s, we used to talk about the Republican Party versus the Democratic Party, that there were some minor differences in terms of their views on Israel. The Republican Party was seen as the, Republic, the party of oil, as the party that somehow the American vital interest, that their views on Israel were more nuanced, more complex. What has happened in the last 20 years is that there is no longer any daylight between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party on Israel, truly. Uh, the American political system, I mean, when we talk about the lobby, and I know it's a very simplistic device, I mean, the American political system now, Democrats and Republicans, so they all compete. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the hearing on, Hague, on, on uh, Chuck Hagel, the Democrats were as hard on as the Republicans. They were basically, and, and what explains this particular really trend that has taken place because it's, it's to me it's extremely difficult to I mean make sense of this particular shift you would expect at least the Democratic Party because given it's I mean it's fully aware of the pulse of public opinion more progressive and yet in fact everything that we know now the most liberal voices within the Democratic Party are as pro-Israel if not more so Netanyahu I'm saying not pro-Israel um, and this is really why a person like Barack Obama, he cannot count on his most loyal liberal allies in the Congress, Pelosi and uh, Char I mean, uh, uh, Schumer, to really support him. If he, I mean, we say Barack Obama challenged Israel. Can he really talk about the money? Would he be able to get any particular initiative uh, within his own party? These are very good questions, and they're all somewhat related. Um, the expropriation of land question is a little bit separate, so I'll come back to that one. The other's all sort of about the lobbies and the public opinion side. Um, J Street, I should have mentioned, J Street is quite important. Um, J Street broke another taboo. 
the taboo that says there shall be no lobby in Washington that speaks in the name of the Jewish community about Israel other than APAC. And Jeremy Ben-Ami, who founded J Street, came out and said, why not? So yes, it's very important. Now, I have a lot of disagreements with J Street. I think they don't go nearly far enough. Uh, but in the context of inside the Beltway, which is where they function, uh, it's great having J Street there. There are members of Congress now who are prepared to do the right thing if they can do so without completely losing their position, for instance. J Street provides a kind of political cover to that, and that's very important. Um, you know, those members of Congress are also not prepared to uh, call Israel an apartheid state and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're only prepared to take small steps. So in that context, J Street is a perfect, uh, you know, uh, uh, operative support for that. Um, the question of how, how it, it's all structured, I mean, the aid is appropriated by Congress. One of the things that we're looking at right now, not, in, not just in the question of aid to Israel, but in the question of uh, certain parts of the, of the military budget as well, only the, only the Congress can allocate funds, but they have to be uh, sort of spent by the, by the executive branch. Can the executive branch refuse to spend? They can't spend money that's not allocated, but can they refuse to spend money that has been allocated? And it's, it's a question. I, people, a couple of people at my institute are looking at it right now because we've been trying to figure it out and nobody seems to know. It, it doesn't usually happen. You know, usually it's that a president wants certain programs to happen and so he or she, well, it's always he uh, so far. <clears throat> he, you know, he goes to Congress and fights for those programs and then tries to get the money so that he can do those programs. The opposite hasn't really been the case. So that's, it's a question. Uh, it's one of the questions. The broader question of how this plays out politically with the two parties, I, I think I would disagree with you a little bit, Fawaz, that I think, in a sense, the, the, the motion has been, as you say, towards the two parties coming together around Israel, but I think they've a bit passed each other now. So that in the last, say, four or five years, maybe six years, it's really been the Republican Party, even more than the Democratic Party, that has emerged as a more explicitly pro-Israel party than the Democrats. Yes. You know, you, you certainly see, as you say, at events like the Chuck Hagel hearing, you'll see Democrats out there, you know, touting their credentials in Israel. And when I was in a helicopter over the narrow waste of Israel, you hear that term all the time, how vulnerable Israel is, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll hear that from every Democrat as well as every Republican. But on the real policy yes. side, it really is the, the Republicans have emerged as much more pro-Israeli. And one side of that is that the Christian Zionist lobbies, uh, Kufi in particular, the Christians United for Israel, which has access to a huge amount of money from evangelical churches all around the US, has become as significant perhaps, or almost as significant as APAC and its orbit of organizations. So it's a bit of a, of a shift that looks at, it's a, it's a right-wing shift in who supports Israel in the US. It used to be this concept of PEP that I mentioned, progressive except Palestine. It used to be that supporters of Israel were among the most left of the, of the US political spectrum. That has not been true for quite a long time and it's moving now much further to the right. Um, so you see, <clears throat> you see a shift in sort of where that comes from the question of why, I think, has to go back to the origins of 
U.S. support for Israel, which is in the post-World War II period, uh, in, the, in the Cold War. That's where the origins are. But you could look at 1967 as a, a really seminal moment in how that special relationship uh, developed. Because what you see there is a situation be between 1948 and 1967, the U.S. of course supported Israel. It had been, as it likes to brag, one of the first, uh, one of the first governments to to vote to uh, to encourage the vote at the United Nations to partition Palestine. One of the first countries to recognize Israel, et cetera, et cetera. But you also see uh, this shift in how the U.S. looks at it in in the region. So you had the Eisenhower period of of Suez, where the U.S. came out against uh, against the Israeli alliance with the Brits and, and the French uh, in support of Egypt. It was a very different, a very different moment. 1967 happens. You're at the height of the Cold War. The U.S. is desperate to find reliable allies all around the world to help it confront the Soviet Union. You have the Six-Day War uh, with Israel as this sudden, stunning victory. And the Pentagon looks at it and says, wow, these guys are good. These guys were, were, were damn good fighters. They trumped six Arab armies. Now that's mostly mythological. They didn't trump six Arab armies. Four of the six didn't even fight. But they did kind of trump two significant Arab armies. It was not, this was not a, a small feat. They, they were pretty good militarily. The Pentagon looks at that and says, we could do business with these people. And business becomes the operative basis of the relationship. But the Pentagon takes the initiative to really immediately build up this relationship, a military relationship, between the US and Israel that is aimed at establishing Israel as, a, as the major center of US interests in the Middle East, to defend US interests against the incursions of the Soviet Union. So it's very much a Cold War reality. And you see it very quickly expanding beyond the region to all the areas where the US and the Soviet Union are engaged in proxy wars. So you see the role of the IDF, the Israeli military, and Israeli military producers. The Galil weapon, uh, the Galil rifle becomes the weapon of choice for the, the soldiers of the military juntas of half the Latin American dictatorships. Why? Because at various points, the US pulls back and says, Ooh, this is a little embarrassing for us to be so publicly, you know, uh, uh, sending weapons to these horrifying dictators that are slaughtering people, we'll let the Israelis do it for a while. And the Israelis step in. Uh, so the relationship is not only in the region, but it's also in Angola and Nicaragua and El Salvador and Mozambique and South Africa. The, 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 uh, the nuclear alliance with apartheid South Africa was very tied to Cold War politics. So all of this comes out in a global sense. This isn't just about uh, the, the, um, uh, the sort of warm and fuzzy images of Israel in the US. But at the same time, you have, and you have had since before 1948, pro-Israel, pro-Zionist lobbies, not only APAC, but APAC's precursors, working in the US to build public support for Israel, for statehood, for the ingathering of the Jews in, in Palestine, for all of that. And they haven't ever really been that successful until 67, when suddenly what they're calling for matches the strategic interests. So you have suddenly the intersection of the political and the strategic, and that strengthens both of them. So they become very closely tied with each other. 
And then at a later point, like when the Soviet Union collapses, the Cold War ends, suddenly the strategic value of Israel declines precipitously, and it's actually starting to look a little bit like a liability rather than, a, than an advantage for the US, you still have a very powerful lobby force that can compensate for that loss of strategic value. So the intersection of the policy and the, and the politics becomes fundamental to the US-Israeli alliance. And that affects the press, it affects how the press uh, uh, covers Israel, it affects popular culture, thus the impact of exodus, uh, it affects curriculum in how the history of Israel is taught in the US. It affects how Holocaust studies is taught, where it's taught as a inevitable and appropriate precursor to the creation of a state, that that could be the only answer to the Holocaust. So it affects everything about US intellectual history of that region. Um, finally, just on the, the last question on the, um, uh, the expropriation of land, the answer is all of the above. Much of the Palestinian land is privately owned in the West Bank by people who have, their families have the deeds that go back to the Ottoman period, even before the Brits, or go back to the Jordanian controlled era, it goes back to various periods. Some of it was collectively owned by villages. What happened when Israel was created in 48 and then again when the 67 war happened was that land that was not being tilled on that day and in many cases where people individually were not present on that day, if they were visiting family in Jordan, for instance, they were away for a semester at school, if they were not present on the day in June of 1967, they lost legally their right of residency. They were never allowed to come back. They were never allowed to return. And their land was deemed state land by Israel. So this settler's claim is legally true in the Israeli legal system. The problem is it's in, in, in complete violation of international law and the laws of any, anything based on human rights and, and uh, yeah, international law. Another round, please. Um, going back to the point you made about the disconnect between public opinion in the United States and policy at the higher level, um, it seems to me that democracy has been completely been used of content in the, in the US. If we take that as a given, how, how do you see that being broken down? Because people that have been involved in, in this area for a while, we, we hear all the time that an increasing number of Jews in America are becoming disaffected with Israeli policies. Um, and various other factors, the strategic interests which the US has there, they no longer have. And yet, the Middle East is a fluid area. That could all change. BDS, if you go back to anti-apartheid, it was a long struggle. We might not have the, the luxury of waiting a long time because things could change in the Middle East. Israel might again be seen to be that really strategic asset that it was deemed to be during the Cold War. I, I guess I'm impatient for change, if you like, like so many of us. And, and how, how how could we actually move that forward and do something within the medium term that's concrete? Thank you. Please. Um, so, so you talked about how the first employer was in televised and how and this is regards to what and how that might have led some shift to another perception. Um, do you think there will be a third in the and if it will inevitably be televised, how do you think this will shift American uh, public perception? Please. Do you think Netanyahu has a 
questions. Can you repeat yes, the question? So just, just that, please. Yeah. We talked a bit about Chuck Hagel. What are your expectations of him? Do you think he will make a difference? Two more questions. Please, wait, wait, Nora. Four already. Yeah, because we, we, <laughs> okay, okay. our time is running out, unfortunately. Please, Nora. Let's go back to the uh, public opinion and how to change policies. So one of the things you mentioned was the generation so is it a matter of time as opposed to will it change? Mm. And the other thing is, you said after the breakdown of the USSR, uh, Israel was no longer, uh, it lost its strategic significance. So I wonder in the context of the Arab Spring, do you think it's going to regain strategic significance with the toppling of uh, US allies? Or is it making it more of a liability because uh, the governments might not? Uh, you know, Thank you, Nora, please. That's a good question. question that's, that's a great that's a question. Okay, I'll try and repeat some of the questions. Um, the disconnect between the public opinion and policy, that's a growing disconnect. How do we challenge that? Uh, do we just wait for a, a generation to change? Is Netanyahu changing facts on the ground? I'm, I'm mixing some of these together. Uh, or is he just playing to the right wing of his coalition? I think that both of those are true. I think some has to do with timing in terms of what's going on inside Israel and in the occupied territory. Uh, certainly Netanyahu is trying to win over support from his right wing because in this last election he was being challenged from the right. I didn't talk much about the election. I don't really have time to do that. But his challenge was from the right. I mean, the politics now in Israel is sort of right, far right, extreme right, and fascist right. And then over there there's a kind of centrist, rather messy grouping that isn't quite sure what they're, what they're doing, except mostly, well, it doesn't matter, but they're not winning. Um, he is trying to change facts on the ground. I think that Netanyahu does have a kind of messianic view of his own role, uh, that you know, there's all kinds of psychological assessments about what his motivations are having to do with his brother and Entebbe and his father and never being good enough for his father. And I've never liked psychological explanations for political actors, but it's out there for anybody who's interested. I think that what's going on is he is trying to change the political balance. I think he knows that by keeping the focus on Iran, and making the claim so consistently on uh, Iran as a so-called so existential threat to Israel, when in fact what it really threatens is only Israel's nuclear monopoly. It doesn't, it's not an existential threat, it threatens a nuclear monopoly. But what it has achieved has been a pullback of any serious criticism over the settlements in, uh, uh, in the US, as long as Israel is in a position of saying, we are being, we have an existential threat you can't talk to us about settlements. We're facing an existential threat. So that's part of a both political and strategic um, approach. What it says in terms of the US and how the response is emerging is that the, the disconnect is not only on this issue. The disconnect between policy shifts uh, and existing shifts in public opinion, we've seen even more dramatically on the question of Iraq. We're seeing it now on Afghanistan. It took a decade to turn public opinion around on Afghanistan. When the war in Afghanistan began, 88% of Americans said this is the right thing to do, that war is the right answer to this terrible crime that was committed on September 11th. In the case of Iraq, it took a little less than that. It took about six years. But it took years in both cases to turn public opinion around. We've done that. Powerful anti-war movements have done that. In both cases, Public opinion was changed years before there was any acknowledgement, and even now, you can't say that the wars are over. 
I'll be talking about that some tomorrow at the Stop the War Coalition uh, uh, events that are going on all day tomorrow for the anniversary of, of the Stop the War Coalition. But I think that it certainly isn't okay to say we, we're, we're just going to wait. You know, nobody can, can let history just wait. We can say the arc, of, the arc of history moves towards justice. Martin Luther King was right. But that doesn't mean the rest of us can sit back and wait for it to happen. It only moves that way if people fight for it. So we have to be out there fighting all the time. I think there is a third intifada underway, but I think it's a global intifada. I think it's a nonviolent intifada based on BDS, based on challenging military aid, based on the challenges to the wall that are going on inside the occupied territories, based on this extraordinary new tactic that Palestinian activists have taken up just in the last month of building resistance villages uh, using the same techniques as the, the builders of the illegal settlements, but on their own land, on Palestinian land. I mean, these are creative, exciting challenges, and I think collectively this really is a kind of uh, third intifada. Um, I think that the strategic role of Israel, uh, it's too late in the context of the Arab Spring to reclaim it. I think they would like to have something like Israel to rely on at the moment when they're losing all their Arab allies, but Israel has been too discredited in the region. There's too much antagonism. There's no government coming to power in the region that wants to be closer to Israel. They all want to be pulling away because that's the only way they can keep any kind of uh, public Three, credibility. Way, complete isolation. Complete isolation. To Iran. Exactly. I mean, this is really, Israel has never been as isolated as Absolutely. it is today. One example of that, in, the, in November's attacks on, on Gaza and the bombing of Gaza, who was getting visitors to express solidarity? It was not Israel. You had the Hamas-led government in Gaza City under the Israeli bombs welcoming the prime ministers and, and foreign ministers of something like 15 countries in the region led by the prime minister of Egypt and the foreign minister of Turkey, the two key U.S. allies in the region. At least who the U.S. wants to claim are their two key allies. So this is a huge shift in who's isolated and, and who's not. On the question of, um, of Hegel, you know, I wrote an article about the Hegel nomination and the Hegel hearings in the nation, and I started it by saying, Chuck Hegel is nobody I would nominate for anything. He's a right-wing <laughs> warmonger. He's, you know, he supports wars as an answer to many social problems. He's anti-women. He's anti-gay, or at least has been in the past. He's, he voted for school prayer and for guns and for war. He voted for every war budget he ever could. So he's not my guy. But we're talking here about who's going to be nominated for the Secretary of Defense. I'm not going to get to choose. I don't get to say that Fawaz should be the Secretary of Defense. Thank you very much. You know, I don't get to say that it should be Congressman Dennis Kucinich who said that there should be a Department of Peace alongside the Department of War or the Pentagon. It's not going to be Congresswoman Barbara Lee, the one member of Congress who voted against authorization for war against Afghanistan after 9-11 and had to have police protection for six months as a result. It's not going to be them. It's going to be one or another warmonger. So as warmongers go, you could do a lot worse than Chuck Hagel yes. because he's the one who says no to the Israel lobby. He says the lobby has too much influence. He says the military budget is bloated and should be cut. He says we should be negotiating with Iran, not threatening war. That's probably as good as you're going to get. Now, do I think he's going to transform the U.S. Pentagon into a uh, defensive instrument? No. Sorry. And the last, well, the two parts of the last question, which goes back to what do we do, how do we challenge this disconnect, and what happens in the future? 
I wish I knew an easy answer. I think the answer is we have to slog through these struggles like every struggle that we've ever gone through. We have to work harder and do more. Some of it is in the streets where there have to be protests, but protests in the street are not the only kind of protests. We also have to do the old, less exciting work of letters to the editor, educating people, teach-ins on college campuses, pressuring members of parliament, you know, getting members of parliament to, to uh, you have a Friends of Palestine in your parliament. What a concept. We don't have anything, you know, they never say the word Palestine in our Congress. So, you know, you're already way ahead. What we've learned in the US is the best way to, to work on this issue for us is to work on changing US policy, whether it's US corporate policy through BDS campaigns, or whether it's the direct US governmental policy of challenging US military aid. So the US campaign to end Israeli occupation is a really wide-ranging set of, of organizations. We don't try and take a position on internal Palestinian matters. We don't get to choose one state, two state. It's not our call. Our call is how do we build, this goes to what do we want? We want a US foreign policy that's based on international law, human rights, and equality for all. If that's in two states, fine. Within both states and between both states, equality for everyone and equality between the states. If it's one state, equality for everyone within the one state. That's our goal, and we want a US policy that's gonna support the trajectory in that direction. That's the only kind of a future I can imagine, and it means for all of us a future of really hard work to get there. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Very hopeful and progressive.